Geek Top 5, Season 5. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> this is so exciting. Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. And I'm Graham. And we are back with a, uh, well, I, this, might, this sort of almost is going to be a two-parter, because we've got some listing and some newsing to do. Uh, you've seen the title, and if you're the kind of person who listens to this show, you probably know the news. Uh, this past week, Microsoft surprised us all uh, by officially announcing that they've acquired Activision Blizzard, former darling of the video game industry, uh, just bought them straight out for a payout of $68.7 billion, all cash. Uh, Not deal. too shabby. Yeah, let's... You know what? I, I feel like this happens a lot. Folks tend to underestimate, like, oh, it's just the difference between an M and a B. No, that's that's a million dollars a thousand times, 68 times. So that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a lot. Uh, what that means is that... Uh, Microsoft is now the parent company and now completely controls who gets to play uh, the video games that are made by some of the people who made some of the best video games of all time, essentially. Uh, we are going to be taking a much deeper look at that, I think, probably next week. Uh, but in the meantime, I, as a smooth way to sort of bring illustrate what we're talking about, uh, we are coming up here, we're doing some dueling lists. We're taking our top five Activision Blizzard games, uh, just to give and I well, both to you know, combat each other and see who's got the best ones, but also just to sort of highlight all the amazing franchises and properties that now belong to Big Microsoft. Yeah, and these two made a lot of amazing games before they, they joined together as one entity, so there's, there's going to be stuff from all over the place, and, and I'm not sure... Between the two of us, that will have anything that was made by the solid, the singular entity, Blizzard Activision. I think we're going to have a bunch of Blizzard stuff and a bunch of Activision stuff. But uh, it's sort of interesting that that the stuff they've done since then. Well, I don't know. I guess we'll see how the list goes. Yeah, their star has definitely fallen in recent decades. Um, they very rarely make games these days. They are far more often in the news for um, the accusations of sexual harassment and the lawsuit from the state of California and all that jazz. Again, yeah. we will get more into the specifics of this uh, in the following episode where we will probably... Uh, break this all down as to what's happening here but holy cow this is a th this is some blood war stuff right demons versus devils and one of them finally won and it's so wild i mean we're talking characters that used to be like the unofficial mascots of the sony playstation that now belong to their greatest rival Another fun note, by the way, that uh, the day after this announcement sony is uh, in the vein of their comp not their well, maybe their biggest competition for video games, actually. Yeah, their value on the stock market dropped by $20 billion. <laughs> These yeah. numbers are so high. <laughs> yeah, they're so high that it's hard to fathom. And, and we always hear about these big drops, but they tend to rebound pretty quickly, and I don't know that we hear about that stuff as much. But again, I guess we'll get into that more next week. As much as any of us care about that side of it. It's the merger that I think is the bigger deal and what that means for our video games. That's definitely the stuff that affects us. I am a little bit personally offended by any single entity having access to $68,000 million. Uh, <laughs> that does bug me a little. But yes, in terms of geekiness, I mean, look, like you're going to be able to play World of Warcraft on Steam. Like, what a brave new world. Uh, maybe also like I get that. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that so much, but we will get to that uh, for today. Let's take a look at some of the games that were key pieces of our childhood, I imagine, uh, that are now getting a, a major handover. Graham, do you want to go first? Yeah, let me go first. <clears throat> uh, I am almost positive this won't be on your list, so I'm not even going to wait to see if you've got it in our traditional dueling list style. I've got Marvel Ultimate Alliance from 2006. Oh, that's not on my list, but it's not as wild as you think. That was a fun game. I really enjoyed the chances I had to play that in the sequel. I just I, I, I don't want to get pigeonholed as the guy who didn't like Marvel Ultimate Alliance. That was really cool. <laughs> Please, yeah, tell us about uh, it. 
Well, this stuff it gets really complicated, as I discovered while researching this, especially when it comes to studios like Activision, where they publish g- games and develop games, but they don't necessarily always do both on the same game. So this is technically developed by Raven, but Raven had been acquired by Activision sometime previously. So for my purposes, I was counting it as an Activision game. Uh, I don't know that the subsequent games were developed by an Activision subsidiary based on my research. So that's why Ultimate Alliance made the list and not two or three and uh, not necessarily the the games that came before it, which are in the same style, but were just X-Men games like X-Men Legends. The actual gameplay of this was pretty simple. You punched and and used your superhero powers with one of four buttons. It was it was button mashing in the most traditional sense, but the thing that made it work was that it was so densely packed with Marvel nerdiness. There were 36 playable characters when all was said and done across the various versions of this game released on all the systems and all the handhelds. And within those, they each had three unlockable costumes, and some of those costumes sort of counted as additional characters, like Thor had a Beta Ray Bill costume, and Iron Man had a War Machine costume, and that's just scratching the surface. There were a lot. And those are just the playable characters. There were also support characters that were also Marvel entities, and you traveled all over the Marvel Universe. It was so much fun just seeing that stuff. And even if the gameplay got a little tedious at times... It was, I kept wanting to play just to unlock more stuff, because that's, as we've discussed previously, when it comes to superhero stuff, I'm a real fashion nut. <laughs> that has come up. Um, but no, and I think we'll be talking about this style of gameplay more than once, but the, like, yes, in a way, it was kind of tedious, but in a way, I would also use the, the word relaxed, that th- sure. this wasn't a hyper-focused, uh, you know, adrenaline, like, actions-per-minute kind of thing. It's, you were Thor, and a bunch of guys ran up to you, you hit the lightning button, and then you punched them until you could hit the lightning button again. Like, the the focus of the game wasn't intense moment-to-moment, you know, action. It was the just a feeling of being a superhero and, and playing with your friends, big, you know, big difference, and going in there and doing and showing off your cool powers and just being cool, which is a power fantasy, which is what superheroes really are. It, it did it really well. Yeah, and um, beyond that, there was also Easter egg things like if you, you you had to pick four characters for every mission that you went on, and if you picked four that were connected in some way in the comic books, then you would get a bonus for that. Like if you had all the members of the Fantastic Four, or all X Men, or all mutants, or gods, or whatever, you would get bonuses, and so it rewarded you for your nerdiness. And really, that's all I'm looking for. That's what this whole podcast is about—a reward <laughs> for all of our nerdiness and geek. Oh, God, I love that stuff. It's, it's like the natural evolution of a set bonus from a role-playing game like World of Warcraft, like where it's like, if you, you equip all the fish armor set, you get a fishy bonus for that, but just going up to the next level, that it's the teams, the characters, that was... And there were some obscure ones, too. You mentioned the Fantastic Four, but I remember you would be like, no, no, you pick this guy because this guy was in this author's run of this comic in 1994, and if we use the right outfit, then that'll get us like you know, extra attack damage because they were the... I'm trying to think of an obscure team name to to make the joke land. I, I want to say Thunderbolts, but that is, isn't that obscure. Well, hey, at the time, Guardians of the Galaxy would have been about as obscure as I get, and I'm sure there were Guardians of the Galaxy bonuses in there. Not that many of the characters actually would have made the game at the time. Now... They're the in Ultimate Alliance three that came out a few years ago. They're like your starting team. It's so weird <laughs> as a longtime comic book fan where we are with some of these characters. I mean that that was a really good movie. That that movie served those characters very well, better than most of their comic books. Ooh, hot take. <laughs> Probably not as hot as you think. But nowadays they have great comics. It, that movie really was a great launching pad for them. Uh, but yeah, a great game. Uh, sequels that that came uh, f- for a while. I I the third game I bought and and uh, I never it didn't click with me the same way these this one did and the sequel did. Um, it was a it's a long gap between the games and I I just don't know that it holds up as well on next generation systems or or maybe I've just outgrown it. I I don't know. I mean, that one do I remember right? That was a Switch game. Like there was something kooky about it. 
that's what I have it on. I can't remember if it was released on anything else. Now that you mention it, I don't think so. Maybe a Switch exclusive. Yeah, I think that might be what's uh, what's hurting it a little bit. I mean, I love the Switch. There are some great games on it, but the kind of game you know where you're looking for like you know I, when I, someone gets hit by an Iron Man beam, I want to see particle effects, right? That's sure. That's not what you're getting on a Nintendo console. That's not what it's for. That's fine. But, you know, superheroes are about spectacle, and you're not getting as much of that on that machine as you are on, like, a brand spanking new PS5 or something. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know that it would be served well. This style of gameplay would be served well in a next-generation system, but it's hard to say. Anyway, it was a great game, and it's an Activision title, and so 2006, that's where my list begins. How about you? What's your number five? Uh, my number five is going back a little bit further in time. Uh, I'm going on to the Blizzard end of things, back when they were still called Silicon and Synapse, back when it was a company founded by three guys who had uh, you know something to prove. Uh, my number five on my list is The Lost Vikings from 1993. That was my number six. That was my honorable ah. mention. <laughs> my list literally ends with Lost Vikings, question mark? Oh, I'm sorry to hear it, but, uh, you know, great minds think mostly alike, kind of. Uh, <laughs> man, we talked about this a little bit back on our bonus episode about four years ago now, where we were talking about the Super Nintendo Classic, but The Lost Vikings was a very unique puzzle game. It was originally released for the Super Nintendo, and then after that it got ported to damn near everything. Um, the Genesis version has a few extra stages and three-player simulplay, but it makes a lot of sacrifices in graphics and music. I think if you're looking this up, Super Nintendo is the uh, the one you want. The Lost Vikings is difficult to describe. If you saw it on someone's TV, it looks a lot like a side-scrolling platformer game, like a Mario. But what it really is, is it's, it's not a case of going from one side of the level to the other. It is a puzzle game. You have to adventure through these maps and flip switches to open doors and find keys and that kind of thing. But they set up a really unique mechanic to do it. You are playing as three characters at the same time. The titular Lost Vikings, uh, Eric the Swift, Balog the Fierce, and Olaf the Stout. And playing single player, you switch, you toggle back and forth. So you move one where you want and switch to the other. And the reason you're doing that is because each Viking has different things that they can do. Eric can run and jump and bash through some walls, a sort of a headbutt. Uh, whereas Balog can't do any of those things, but he's the fighter guy. He has a sword and a bow and arrow. And Olaf can't do any of those, but he has a big shield, and that shield can also be held above his head to double as a hang glider or a platform. So you'll be in a lot of places where, I mean, here's a very simple one. You'll, have, you'll play as Balog, and you'll defeat some enemies, and then you'll walk Olaf over there until there's a gap, and then use his shield as a platform, and then switch to Eric, and run and jump onto the, the shield, and jump off to hit something on the other side, that kind of thing. So you go back and forth between these three sets of abilities, and of course the game is constantly setting it up where it's like, nope, you have to leave this one Viking here, so now try to solve it with just two. And you think, okay, which one do I have to leave behind? Which abilities do I need? It was really a thinking game um, in a way that a lot of sort of you know, cheap side-scrolling platformers in 1993 weren't doing at the time. Yeah, it's a game that I remember being unique, and, and the character designs were cool. I, I love, you know, who doesn't love a good Viking? And this had three of them. And I I always wanted to like it, but I think at the time, the puzzles were were a little too much for my, my child brain. And I feel like if I went back now, I'd like it a lot more. I feel like I would I would really appreciate puzzling through the different problems. And uh, so, so that's part of it. I haven't played it in so long, and when I did, I didn't fully grasp it the way I... I would like to have. Even when uh, we started doing ROMs and emulators, I I just wasn't wasn't in that mind space. And and now playing uh, the Toad's Treasure Tracker and all that stuff, I think I'd really appreciate the that type of game. Yeah, it also something you may forget because it's not the focus, but it also helps that that game has a wicked sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are not serious Vikings. This is not a dark and gritty Valhalla. Like, it's, like, the Vikings are lost because they've been abducted by aliens and also lost in time. Uh, and they're very 
They're very 90s about it. You remember the 90s cartoon characters, the Earthworm Jims, the Sam and Max, the, you know, the, like, sarcastic, kind of unflappable, not yet quippy. We weren't doing quippy yet, but the very wrapped up in themselves character. This is a lot of that. It is a very childish, in a good way, um, very just pleasant atmosphere to have the three of them constantly bickering with each other and with other characters who just don't seem to react with much surprise to these three Vikings teleporting into their world. But it's just, it's a very fun place to be in addition to that puzzle stuff. Uh, If you're looking to replay it, um, Blizzard has released the Blizzard Arcade Collection that's out for most modern consoles and PC. That comes with the Lost Vikings, Rock and Roll Racing, and Blackthorn. Yeah, Rock and Roll Racing, another great Silicon and Synapse title uh, that didn't make my list. But uh, if you 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 ever wanted to hear a 16-bit synthesized rendition of Highway Star, that's where you can get it. And uh, at least one of the Lost Vikings is an unlockable character in it. That's right, yeah. Um, oh, I think it's Olaf and I, Balog is in the background, or maybe the other way around. <laughs> but it's a, it, I just wanted to say that a sense of humor was integral to a lot of the Blizzard games. It was like, a, even in their more epic uh, games that came later, they always had funny elements to it. And I think that's uh, a, a staple of that studio and in in a way that not a lot a lot of other studios have a staple you know a lot of studios have staples as far as gameplay goes or certain characters but this had a sense of humor that carried from property to property yeah i no you're you're absolutely right for those games that make up like the like the stuff that blizzard did there was always room for jokes in there um it's been a while since they did anything new or anything interesting uh they're Probably their latest game is Overwatch, and there is a sense of humor there. It's not quite the same. Um, But we've gotten a bit into the weeds. The Lost Vikings, Super Nintendo 1993, uh, is on my list because it was unique, it was fun, it was special, and it was different. Um, It is also number five on my list because it was a pretty cheap game. They were definitely not a AAA studio at that time. It's a little difficult to play because of poor design rather than just challenge, uh, because the concepts haven't been ironed out yet. Uh, It's... it's uh, It works better with nostalgia than it does without, I think. Uh, so if you're looking to play it, you can. Uh, if you just want to sort of see these characters, I, I know you young ones with your battle arenas these days, uh, the Lost Vikings as a whole are a selectable cl- player in Heroes of the Storm, Blizzard's sort of answer to the, the Dota kind of games. And I don't think a lot of people are playing that anymore, but it's free to play. Uh, so you can get, sort of see, see them there, I guess, if you're curious. Okay, so my number four is another thing that's not uh, strictly an Activision game. It's a, it's a Treyarch game, but that they had been acquired by Activision. It's Ultimate Spider-Man from 2005. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Uh, not on my list, but I, I see where you're going. There have been a lot of Spider-Man games over the years. Uh, going all the way back to the NES, maybe even earlier, there have been arcade games, there's been all sorts of things. To my mind, this was the first one, or at least of the ones that I played, this was the first one that got the web swinging perfect. You could just swing around the city, and it felt like you were actually connecting with a building as you swung around, and and you could just explore New York. And there were missions and, and side quests, but you could ignore those for a little bit and just enjoy the city. And that was such a delightful thing. Like, I I would spend time just swinging through the city and ignoring the game. And the game was great, but that was the thing that sold it for me. And it made me play it for much longer than I would have otherwise. It also fits in really perfectly with the Ultimate Spider-Man comic books. The game was actually, the story of the game was written by Brian Michael Bendis, who was in the midst of a hundreds of issues long uh, Spider-Man run. And it this ties in with the storyline. And then the comics, after it came out, also referenced things that happened in the game. So as a comic book nerd, I also appreciated how tied in it was to the the storyline. You also got to play as Spider-Man and Venom, and they had different uh, playable modes to it like there were different things you needed to do with each venom is more of a brute and stronger and he also had to like eat people in order to stay alive spider-man's a bit more agile a bit more nimble and you know 
didn't need to eat people. Right, he could yeah. choose to, but <laughs> <laughs> they also had cutscenes where it was the the screen would get divided into comic book panels, so it just felt very respectful of the comic book world. And and I just I remember really loving that game. Going back and watching clips from it in preparation for this. Wow, it does not hold up from a visual standpoint. Like, I, I, no game from 2005 would, I don't think. But it was just, like, shocking how colored my memory has been over the over time. Like, actually seeing it fresh, it was jarring how, I guess, bad it looked in comparison to the games of today. But that being said, the web swinging that you do in it felt very reminiscent of the PlayStation 4 and 5 Spider-Man game that... I loved and and there were so many things he did in in the Ultimate Spider-Man game that they took and put into this. And and look, honestly, there's only so many ways you can web swing, but it just felt like I could see the moves coming from this. Like it was the copy and paste up to a point. And oh, yeah. that surprised me. Oh yeah, and and like let's be clear. I mean, one of the like yes, it is a 20-year-old game, but one of the major reasons why it doesn't hold up is because the Insomniac Spider-Man, the new one, the PS4 5 one is like almost a perfect game. That's an award game of the year winner. That's a like like that was that's a big deal. That Spider-Man game is is a game changer to overuse the phrase. <laughs> uh but that being said, like, yeah, a lot of people, when they played that, they said, okay, one of the things this game does right is it's the first Spider-Man game to get web-slinging right since Ultimate Spider-Man. And I remember, I have played Ultimate Spider-Man several times, and I don't think I have ever actually played a mission. I don't, <laughs> like, I just wanted to swing between those buildings, and that's something that may be worth investigating a bit to narrow down, like... Like, the fantasy about playing as Colossus is to be invincible, right? Nothing can hurt him. And the fantasy of playing as the Hulk is to smash stuff, like like to jump up and down and destroy cars. But Spider-Man, it's not about fighting the Green Goblin or Doc Ock or anything. It's what you think of when you think of Spider-Man is that freedom of movement. But the thing is that that I keep coming back to when I think about this is it's like if I were playing a Superman game and I was just flying through Metropolis, it wouldn't have the same satisfying feeling as the web slinging does. And I'm not sure why. Well, because it's boring. It's effortless. (laughs) Superman sticks his fist out and he just goes. And that's it. Spider-Man, there's a rhythm to it. And this is what that game did really well is like that you, you have like you it's like a pendulum. You 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 like you swing down and then back up and at the top of the arc you release and then reefs web and swing again and you build up speed when you do it right and then the new one does this correctly as well mm-hmm. and they have that thing like they have the added feature like you have two different kinds of swings you can do you like a longer broader swing and a shorter quicker swing and you can work them together to do some really cool stuff but it's it's just enough that you're doing something and building up a rhythm. And it's not effortless. Like, it's just enough effort that you're in control. Superman, you just press the fly button. It's not cool. You're not doing it. It's just something that happens. That, I think, is the difference there. Hmm. That sounds, that sounds very reasonable to me. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so I uh, so yeah, I, I can back you up, like, essentially through anecdotal knowledge and through hearsay that it was a really good game. All I wanted to do was swing around New York. And I did. And it was fun. I never bought it for that reason. But, you know, back in the days when they had those demo stations and I guess they would probably have been electronics boutiques back then. No, they might be EB games. Hard to say. Yeah. Microplay. No, I don't remember anymore. Uh, uh, Microplay might have been a bit too early. (laughs) The last Microplay that I was near died out in the 64 era. Um, Oh, man. Yeah. Neither here nor there. It's the, yeah, I... (sighs) I mean, that new Spider-Man game is so good, and the Miles Morales version of it, so good. But that game, back when it came out, it nailed the swinging. And I'm glad to hear that everything else was good. I'm glad to hear Bendis was involved. <laughs> and I probably missed out not experiencing it, but like that was like that was enough. That made it a Spider-Man experience, and that's what I wanted. It's also interesting. Like I played a few of the Spider-Man games that have come out in between, like the... Uh, the one where you w- were fighting off the 
bad suit and the one where you're going through the different universes and none of them got this, the web swinging right. And I don't think I could pinpoint exactly what they did wrong, but I just wasn't as captivated by it. And nothing did it until this PS4 one, which is wild. Like, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to get right. I think you tell that to the poor guy programming it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think one of the things that that helps it stand out is the ability to go around New York and in that game you could go to the Baxter building and you know, he would you wouldn't actually see the Fantastic Four. Sorry, the Baxter building is the headquarters of the Fantastic Four, but he would make a quip about the Fantastic Four. There'd be like some something that would be like exciting about going there and discovering it just some new bit of dialogue and that is in the the this game too the PS4 one although it's Avengers Tower but those little easter eggs are fun and make the exploring even better okay let's move on what is your number 4 yeah we could we could spend too much time gushing for <laughs> Spider-Man on this podcast my number 4 a uh, a pure i was surprised actually but a purely in-house Activision title my number four is Star Trek Armada from March of 2000. <laughs> that is my number three. Hey, okay, so it's it's going to be the next thing you talk about, so we might as well just launch into it, right? Yeah, yeah, let's okay. do it. This uh, a game you introduced to me. Uh, I had no idea existed, and it was really cool. Um, Star Trek Armada came out on the tail end of when real time strategy games were. We're all uh, the coolest thing on the block. This is your Warcraft, your Starcraft, your Command and Conquer. It's a top-down view. It's strategic. You use the units, I guess, the people or machines or whatever they are that's available to harvest resources. You use those resources to build a military base. You build an army of very specific different kinds of guys, and then you go fight the other guy's army and blow up their base. Um that's the very, very basic version of it. If you have playing a good RTS game, there's story and stuff. Uh, this was the Star Trek take on it, and it was surprisingly really good. Surprising in part, in large part, because Star Trek games have not fared well. There are a ton of Star Trek games, I'd say probably from the late 80s up until the early 2000s. They made a bunch of them with apparently no quality control whatsoever. (laughs) There are several sort of partially flawed diamonds in the rough, and then recently it just died out. Um, Bit of a cursed franchise in the home entertainment market, but uh, (laughs) this one was pretty cool. It didn't really, it didn't do anything other RTS games weren't doing. Like, instead of your guys being miners, they were dilithium freighters. And instead of harvesting lumber, you were bringing, you know, you were bringing back dilithium and training crew on your starbase. But you would construct... I I feel like the one place where it did have something unique was that you could beam over onto enemy ships and take over that I'm getting to that. Sorry, you were just saying it didn't do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yes, you you had crew on your ships, you could beam them onto enemy ships, and if your crew outnumbers the crew left of the enemy ship, you could capture it. It meant you spent a lot of this game listening to the transporter sound effect. (laughs) But what really, I think, set this game apart was the game was incredibly heavily story-driven and brought back a bunch of cast members. Patrick Stewart was in there to be Jean-Luc Picard and Locutus, spoiler alert. Michael Dorn was back for Worf. Denise Crosby was back for Sela. And J.G. Hertzler was back for Martok. So, really basic real-time strategy games would base like command and conquer the first work well yeah both of them they would let you like you'd pick a side and you'd fight and that side would win the war and then later on what they did is they had well this is one long story like told from the perspective of different factions over time armada did this perfectly you start playing as the federation you do a few missions of that then the perspective switches to the klingons and you see some things from their point of view then you're the romulans and you're playing as sila and doing their thing and then you're playing as the borg which is great and you're doing their thing and then surprise shocker fifth campaign where it's all three of the others team up against the borg because obviously uh, but they were fully voiced cutscenes with these characters that we love talking to each other uh, with surprisingly accurate models of the ships and stuff as the units. Like, it, it looked really good. Um, it just You're building your Galaxy-class ships or your Akira-class ships or your Klingon Birds of Prey or what have you. Uh, the game was 
maybe a little unremarkable, but it was a solid gameplay, and it told a solid story. It told a really cool Star Trek story, with all these references to things like the Omega Particle from Voyager, and the Sword of Kalis episode from Deep Space Nine. Like, all this, like, the people making this game knew what Star Trek people like about Star Trek, and built that in to a really good real-time strategy game. Yeah, and I think something that has been forgotten or lost in time is everyone's adding new twists to the RTS genre. And really, it feels like at that time period, it was perfected. And I feel like, at least to my mind, every RTS I've played since that time, it's just been wrong, you know? There's been too much added mishigas to it that I'm not interested in. I just want to get back to the basic building units... The units do slightly different things, and you go out and you pit your army against the other army. That's all I really want, and adding more stuff on top of it actually diminishes the the game for me. Yeah, real-time strategy games have really dropped off the map. Um, There was a lot of... I think in the late, well, no, yeah, early 2000s, let's say, I think there was a lot of experimenting to find something new. And what they did is they started focusing in and making the breadth of the game more and more narrow. It was like, instead of controlling armies, you're starting to control squads. And then you're starting to control, like, by the time you get to Warcraft 3, they introduced heroes. And now you're really micromanaging, like, a single guy. And that's what led to the rise of all these battle arena games. Your your Defense of the Ancients, your League of Legends, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so now you have this situation where you'll have, like, sort of these three-on-three things, but each player is only controlling one person. Like, that's where that went to. And I'm going to use the word degraded to, um, because it's a personal opinion, but I don't like those games. I like the bigger, larger army-style games, like the one where one tank or one ship or whatever it is doesn't matter, because you're building fleets or armies and doing cool stuff. Armada is... A little bit plain, but a great example of that. It's I, it's plain, and I feel like if it were, if it weren't Star Trek, if it was some generic new universe, I I probably wouldn't have been interested, and it would have been boring. But something about it being a Star Trek game and a fun Star Trek game on top of it made the plainness of the actual RTS of it even better for me. It was just like. Neat seeing the ships that I recognized. It gave me a new appreciation for some of them. Like, you could build Miranda classes and Akira classes and things like that. And they're ships that, when they appeared on screen, didn't mean that much to me. But once I got used to what they could do in the game, I was like, oh, that's an Akira class. Oh, I love that one. And that was a new experience for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm more of a starship porn guy than you are. But, uh, But yeah, I understand that. Yeah, lots of cool ways to look at cool new ships. Um, I feel like we should move on, but just before we do, can we also mention, it's not really a spoiler, It ha- like we get it teased in the opening cutscene, well, not teased, it's right there in the opening cutscene, but how cool was it? This story, like the climax of it is Captain Picard on the Enterprise E versus a cloned Locutus on a Borg cube. And a Locutus, a Locutus cloned in the Jem'Hadar cloning facilities. It's like tying yeah. in all this great stuff. But the the, the performance of Patrick yeah. Stewart as Jean Luc Picard, like antagonizing Patrick Stewart as Locutus, was so cool. It was. <laughs> it still is. Like it, it definitely had more of an effect on me when I was fifteen. But. So cool. What a great like examination of that. I kind of wish that was an episode, because I'd love to see the more Star Trek episode of it, like the examination. What does that mean for his character? How would yeah. that, uh, but you know, the few lines of dialogue they do have together in the game was enough. That it's that was just it was all it's right on the verge of being kind of fan wanky. But because it's done so well by people who have such respect for the franchise. It just it comes across as so awesome, and Star Trek Armada and uh, a bunch of other Star Trek games are now available to purchase on uh, what is it GOG.com? and uh, where games. they right they, they they do what the name says they they get old games that don't really work on modern systems and and make them work on the modern systems. Uh, I think they're like fourteen or fifteen dollars each. 
of I, I'm going to spoil a little bit of all the games that are on my list. This was the only one where I was like, when I watched it again, I was like, I, I kind of want to play it again. And I, <laughs> I am very tempted to go buy it. Very cool. Okay, so that was my number four and your number three. So now we go back to you for your number three. Okay, my number three uh, is going to be controversial for a very niche, small crowd of people. At least one of whom I know listens to this podcast, maybe more. The number three on my list is Diablo 3 with a butt. Um, <laughs> is that the name of the game? Yes, Diablo 3 with a butt. It's about his butt. No, Diablo <laughs> 3 came out in 2012, but I am specifying my number three is Diablo 3, the Eternal Collection, released in 2018. This is a Blizzard game. Diablo is one of their treasured franchises, and... Pretty much universally, Diablo 3 is considered the worst of the three. <laughs> uh, with a possible exception of a mobile game that I don't know if they ever even got it off the ground. Okay, so I, I had definitely tapped out of the franchise by 3. I'm, I know I played 1 and I think 2, and I feel like both times I played the games... I like all you do in that game is press the left mouse button and I really really loved it for like a week and then I was like I am just pressing the left mouse button that's what I'm doing for hours at a night uh, at a time at a night and uh and and then I got bored of it you know as soon as I made that realization both times that was it so what is it that <laughs> made Diablo 3 work for you well See, it's tricky because to do the full the full saga of Diablo three, you have to start with what didn't work. Um, Diablo, it's a top down sort of isometric view. It's a hack and slash game. It's like it's fantasy. It's dark fantasy. So you're like you're a, a grim wizard or a grim knight or a grim barbarian. A lot of variety. Uh, <laughs> you you run around this fantasy world and you kill zombies and monsters and they drop new weapons and new equipment which allows you to kill stronger zombies and stronger monsters which would drop and it creates this cycle and eventually you fight the devil basically. Diablo three uh, when it was released had two major problems. Uh, first, it launched with that always-on digital rights management, which meant even if you were playing the game offline by yourself, the game you had to be connected to the internet so that at random intervals it could ping Blizzard servers and just make sure that you actually paid for the game. Which, Ugh. I mean, they're like we're now you know ten years later, and there are still parts of the world that don't have a reliable internet connection. So there was a big protest about that, and there was also the auction house, which was a disaster. This game launched in 2012. They shut this down in 2014. Basically, that loop I described, kill stuff to get stuff and get stuff to kill stuff, all that stuff could be auctioned off to other players for real money. Ugh, and, all the worst parts yeah. of this era. Like, that's the early days of, like, paying to win, it sounds like, and the sort of mid-to-end days of the DRM debacle. Yep. So you could walk into this game and just go to the auction house and buy the legendary 12-foot sword of 19 gods that also sets people on fire for... You know, you could bid on it for an extra hundred bucks. And, of course, Blizzard took a cut of every transaction in there. Um, it was a disaster, and everyone just shelved Diablo 3. But they kept working on it, and they closed the auction house, and they rebalanced the loot, and the DRM didn't matter, and they released it on consoles rather than just on PC. And I think that once all this stuff was done... All these fixes were made. Some DLC came out. That's what builds up into this eternal collection I'm describing. I think Diablo 3 on a console is the best way to have a Diablo experience. Again, even better if you have a friend to play with, because now you have this really cool, really easy to play, 100% co-op sort of arcade experience. Diablo 3, especially when played with a friend, is a great way to wind down after a long day. On the PC version, what you were talking about, yeah, you click on an enemy to attack him, click on an enemy to attack him again, click on the enemy to attack him again. They just 
they, it feels so much more natural on a controller where all your moving is handled by the stick and each button, each face button on the controller is mapped to one of your abilities. So if you're a wizard, each button is one of your spells, that kind of thing. And you just adventure through this town and on really on more difficult difficulties, it can get to be tricky. It can get to be, you have to be in the right place and do the right thing. But on a standard difficulty, it's more just keep an eye on your health bar. Like if it's starting to look low, back off and heal. Otherwise, just explore these cool dungeons, use cool spells and these cool monsters. Frankly, the gameplay is a lot like what you were describing in Ultimate Alliance. Mm. The story, eh, not great. <laughs> the like the the lore and the plot hooks eh. the like the actual loot system it can get repetitive but if you just you know shoulder to shoulder with a friend and just like ah let's just you know, dive into this ancient abandoned evil church and kill a bunch of frogmen and oh look cool i got the new lightning spell i can run it through three frog guys at once it's a lot of fun, it's very rewarding, it's very practical, and it doesn't beat you up for it. And I feel like it's overlooked. So this is my, like, re-inviting people of the world as you listen to this podcast. Diablo 3 has had a glow-up. <laughs> so it's so another thing that it was, I guess, in the early days of was that this... And it doesn't sound like it was intentional in this case, but releasing an incomplete game and it only becoming truly properly playable sometime after the release. And well, that's so like, common these days. But it was complete. It was just bad. <laughs> right? <laughs> All the levels were in there. Uh, but they just made some very questionable decisions and money-grubbing decisions that really turned people off. Uh, so it's not that this was incomplete, but it needed a, a revision. And everybody hated it, and they took it back and changed the ingredients and rebaked it and served it again. And it's really good. I've bought it twice now. I've bought it on Xbox wow. 360 and then bought it again on PS4. It's probably still in my library. I could probably play it again on PS5 if I wanted. Um, but it just, it, it's really good. We played through it a few times in a row just to try out all the different characters and all the different things we could do. And honestly, at the end of the day, they're not that different. You know, the wizard can cast a bunch of little fireballs and the demon hunter can shoot a bunch of crossbow bolts. It, like, it's not that different, but it's different enough to be interesting and fun and rewarding and you enjoy your time playing it, and at the end of the day, you put it away and you think, man, I got more powerful today. I got the cool new blood sword of the desert god, and that's that's really going to boost my... Oh, that's great. What? Oh, good progress has been made. I've achieved something. It's a, it's a good feeling. And plus, you know, fighting evil, that's important too. <laughs> I don't know, man. With all those caveats, I'm having a hard time seeing how this ranked higher than Armada for you. Because there is so much more to do. Mm. Armada, at the end of the day, is about 20 missions. Uh, and I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think it even had, like, just a random skirmish instant action mode. It, it, I remember it had a very crude level editor to build your own maps, but that might even have been fan-made. Diablo is a huge game. Uh, Diablo mm. 3 specifically, there's a ton to do in it, and then there's procedurally generated stuff, and... I mean, if you're the you know, the kind of person who's really into that loot crawl that I want to get stronger and better and make my numbers higher, like you could play this game forever. It will keep generating new stuff and new maps and new versions of enemies with more health. Like it's, it's this game will you're getting a lot more bang for your buck. Would it be cooler if it was Star Trek characters? I don't know. <laughs> It's instead of a wizard or a barbarian, you've got like Spock and Chakotay. It's I don't oh, know. Man. All right, all right, fine. I'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Just a thought. If you if you're listening out there, video game developers, Star Trek Diablo, give me a call. Okay, so let's move on to to the next ones on our list. My number two. I am so curious what our two and one are going to be. Uh, my number two is Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness. So is my number two. <laughs> so there you go. And we probably have the same number one as well. Probably, yeah. Yeah, okay, but hit me with Warcraft 2. <laughs> All right, Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness. Uh, I, 
it's a very basic RTS and, and like Star Trek Armada and a lot of the games of that era, especially in the RTS field, you, there were separate campaigns you would play as either the humans or the orcs and it would tell one story and you're, you're getting both sides of it and you're fighting through the game. They, like Jesse was saying about Armada, you start with a base, you, you build your basic, uh, you know, home base, and then you've got characters that come out and, and can build farms and collect resources, and then you build bigger and bigger units. If you're playing as the orcs, you would get these, like, ogres and goblin sappers, and uh, if you're playing as the humans, you would get griffins, and, and they were very similar. It was basically just the same thing, but palette swapped, and when you played against anyone else, it was just a matter of overwhelming that side. But it was so much fun, and it had that Blizzard sense of humor. There were jokes hidden within it. Uh, if you clicked on a character, one of your, your peons enough, he would start to say funny things, and that would that was true for all the characters in the game. And it's it was... It was the first RTS I ever played. I didn't play Warcraft 1, and I know Blizzard went on and made other games like StarCraft and and Warcraft 3, but nothing captured my heart quite like this game. And I know StarCraft is a much bigger game at the end of the day. it's They're still doing StarCraft tournaments in Korea that are televised, but Warcraft 2 was the game that captured my heart in 1995 and I played that for for a couple of years afterwards and I have a very fond memory of you and I at summer camp in our website development thing we were went to a very nerdy camp and like <laughs> we learned how to make a website and we finished that on day 1 and we had like 2 weeks left in it and the computers all had Warcraft installed on them and you and I would play Warcraft against each other from these different computers. It was very early multiplayer for us, and it was so much fun. Oh, God, it had to run through a separate application through Blizzard's Battle.net. Uh, <laughs> uh, Big yeah, deal at the time. It was. Yeah, Warcraft 2 was a, a trendsetter. Warcraft 2 was up there with Command and Conquer as saying, this is what this genre of video game can be like. It was... Everything you describe, absolutely. It was challenging. It was interesting. It, it developed. You got int- like, you know, introduced to new units and new stuff that you could do. The thing, I mean, the thing about it that hit me, I'll tell you, is that I mean, the game had just enough story, just enough. Like, but the, before every mission, you'd have either a a very deep throated human or a very grumpy orc tell you what you were doing. Or we're going to this town. This is where these guys are. We have to blow them up. But the lore behind this game was just blew me away. The instruction manual for Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness is like 100 pages long, and I think 90 pages of it is just fiction. I mean, in the game, suppose you're having like a large multiplayer battle, like we're talking like eight people on one map. Yeah, you can choose human or orc, and the way they differentiate between the players is like, okay, so you're playing the humans who are all colored blue, and you're playing the humans who are all colored white, and you're playing the humans who are all colored green. It's a gameplay mechanic, so you can tell who controls what unit. But in the manual, there's like, oh, the blue humans, those are the guys from the kingdom of Azeroth. This was the kingdom that fell in Warcraft 1, and it's what the land was named for. And, you know, and, then, the, and then the green humans, they're from Kul Tiras. They're a merchant nation, and they're really big in ships. And, and, and none of that mattered in the game. <laughs> but I read that manual cover to cover over and over. Even the descriptions of the units and what they do, you know, catapult. It's like, well, it... You know, it, it throws a rock from this far away, hits targets, it's particularly good against buildings. But instead, you'd get three paragraphs of the dwarves of Kazmudin have assembled these siege engines using this powerful magical rock and da-da-da-da-da. Like, they they did world building the kind of the way Tolkien did it, which is far too flattering a comparison. <laughs> but... They did it the way he did it, where they laid, they had a bunch of stuff, a bunch of backstory, and then just had this game play in it. And you could just play the game, but if you wanted to get invested, you could refer to this huge world they made. And they eventually made, like, they, they developed that world into World of Warcraft, the biggest video game of all time still today. Uh, but at the time, just having those tastes of it was tantalizing. Yeah, and, and I, I'm going to go into grumpy old man territory here, but I feel like... <sighs> 
I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad, but in the old days, you had to read the manual to understand how to play a video game, and there was always a lot of story stuff contained within the manual that wasn't necessarily explained in a game, and that was true of Nintendo games and video games, and... I guess it's a good thing that they don't do that anymore because <laughs> I know I didn't read manuals uh, and uh, certainly not as obsessively as you did. And uh, so I'm sure I missed out on stuff. I was still able to enjoy the game, though. Now all of that stuff is generally baked into the game in some way. You still don't necessarily have to read it. Like in Mass Effect, there's there's all those like encyclopedia entries you can read. And, you know, your mileage may vary on how much of that you actually bothered to read. But it's still neat that they put all that effort into it and just put it in a book in the in in your that came with the box that uh, the game came in and like you could read it while you were eating cereal and not have your computer anywhere near you and you'd still be enjoying the experience. Yeah, it was a different way to be immersed in the world and I mean, honestly, I, I'm kind of on the other side. I understand why that died out. I think it makes a lot more sense now that games can explain their world and their fiction like through the experience like i like i'm trying to picture like if somebody made a movie where to really understand the backstory like you had to read a pamphlet first no one would buy that <laughs> i i, I think like, well, you could argue that the star wars prequels are that <laughs> <laughs> and people love the star wars prequels yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I get it. I understand why they're gone, but I do miss them. I do still have an old shopping bag full of these instruction manuals from my youth. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> just because of how much time I spent reading. God, I wonder if my parents knew. I I, I, I wonder if they realized like, that, like, half my reading was just these video game manuals with these schlocky high fantasy fiction written in them. I'm sure they were just happy you were reading. Yeah, you'd, yeah, you'd be surprised. If I, got, <laughs> I, I was that kid who read at the table too often. Was... Anyway. Okay. Yeah, In the Weeds, Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness, 1995. Uh, came out for DOS, then was re-released for Windows, got an expansion pack. I Honestly, I don't know if it's still available. Knowing Blizzard, I'm sure they must be trying to sell it somewhere, but like it's I don't think it will hold up. There are a lot of game mechanics that weren't invented yet back then. Like they had like you could only control 9 units at once because that's how many little profile pictures could fit on the screen, like that kind of <laughs> thing. Like it's there's not a lot to it. That is a nostalgia thing, but what a game changer for what it was. That was a that was a good one, and yeah, and obviously because it's number two on both our lists. All right, so I'm going to jump ahead to our number one. There's only one answer here. I'm not even going to bother asking. I'm going to try and just do a brief summary, and uh, you can uh, fill in the blanks. I leave Mech Warrior Two, 31st Century Combat, and its uh, expansion packs. At least for my money, that I included them. Ghost I did Bears. as well. <laughs> We're the same person, man. <laughs> Ghost Bears Legacy and uh, MechWarrior 2 Mercenaries. Uh, then in uh, 1997, they released the Titanium Trilogy that had all three games and some upgraded graphics. Uh, it's it's the MechWarrior games. We did a whole podcast about it. You are in giant mechs. You go around and shoot other giant mechs. They are of various sizes and uh, capabilities. They have various weapons. Um, I think one of th this game... The first game had that same style of the two different campaigns. You could be as Clan Wolf or, or play as Clan Jade Falcon, and you'd go out and you'd get one story when you played them all together. Uh, the first game had 18 mechs. The expansion added 14 more, and MechWarrior uh, Mercenaries had 30 more mechs. It's, it's a lot of mechs, and it has been a long time since I played that game or even have really seen it played. So I went back on YouTube and watched some clips from it, and... Some of the things are, like, laughable now, like, how simplistic they were. Like, customizing the mechs, it was all almost all text-based, and I had completely forgotten that <laughs> compared to what the, the complexity of mech stuff these days. But I had so much fun playing that game, and the fact that you were so into it and our, our other friend Jonathan Steven was so into it, it made it a collective experience. We would talk about what mechs we used and how we customized them and how we beat these missions. And it made it that much more fun. And mercenaries for my money, was the best of the bunch because it added 
at the illusion of choice to it. You know, you would have certain contracts you could take and you would get salvage from it and the story would change based on your choices. Although usually it was pretty clear which were filler missions and which were the actual story missions. It still felt like you had some agency in how the game played. And, And man, I played that game so much. All right, I'm done. You go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, tough call on Mercs being the best of the three, but they're all really good. Um, longtime fans of the podcast know that I'm a Battletech addict, and I harbor a deep hostility for all of you who aren't addicted to it as well. Like, it's a problem. <laughs> um, so Mech Warrior, there's no way that's not going to be at the top of my list. So I want to just back this up by saying that Mech Warrior 2 is also an award-winning game. I mean, this was a huge deal. No one had ever played a simulation-style game like this to that date. Um, it was just... It, it, it changed all the rules, essentially. It was you know, super blocky, but at the time, you know, it was a full 3D environment, and you're in the cockpit of this robot, and you go out to do, to do just different enough things to keep you busy... I do think the the highlight of it, though, was customizing the mechs. I mean, you had a lot of mechs to pick from, and like the the usual rule, the quick version of this in Mech Warrior is they range from what twenty five tons to a hundred tons. The bigger they are, the more weapons and armor they can carry, but the slower they go. Uh, but there were so many options of weapons and so many different things to consider. Do you want all energy weapons, like lasers, that you don't need to worry about ammunition, but they build up so much heat, and if your heat meter gets too high, you might explode? Or you could go with missile weapons, which could lock on to a really long range, but ammunition-based, and also a tendency to explode in your mech if you get too hot. Different kinds of cannons do different things. The The story... In this game, like Warcraft 2 actually, had a lot of lore and not a ton of story. It's based on a series of books uh, of an event that's taking place in in Battletech called the Refusal War. And in between missions, if you wanted, you could read paragraphs and paragraphs of text excised from these books to help provide context. And and I did that because I'm a huge dork. (laughs) But... Honestly, the majority of my time in this game was spent in the mech lab, thinking like, "What is I, I like just tuning up these mechs like they were like 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 John Travolta tuning up a hot rod, like just how can I make the fastest, most powerful, best defended mech? Just like and I spent so much time balancing between different kinds of weapons and different kinds of gear and how many jump jets. We we found exploits in the game. Like there was like if you lock onto a target with a missile weapon and then you your crosshair wanders off the target, you still have like a full second before the lock breaks. So we got into the habit with certain mechs that you'd lock onto a target and then yank the joystick back and pull the trigger so all your missiles would shoot up into the air, and then they would arc downward, and you had a way better chance of doing damage to the enemy mech's head. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, things like that, that we just figured out, like finding all the little bits in the game engine. The customization was the coolest thing, I think, because it meant that every single time you booted up this game, you could be doing something slightly different. It's just that it also had these amazing robots and this cool story, and it just it was super overwhelming. And it's it's the one the Titanium Trilogy manual is the one manual that I still have from my childhood. It's it's in this house somewhere, and every once in a while, you know, I crack it open and get a, this nostalgic buzz flipping through the pages and looking at the old mechs. God, yeah. So back to your initial. I mean, it really is one game, but with but these two huge expansion packs, Ghost Bears Legacy and Mercenaries, separate stories to play, additional mechs to play with. Which one is the best, I think, is a tough call. Mercenaries came out like a year later than the other two. Mm-hmm. It was the last one. It was the most technologically advanced. But the, um, anyway, so the Titanium Edition actually took those like the better graphics and like the the better balance setup from mercenaries and applied it to the previous two games um jeez ah, <laughs> 
like the the contract system in mercenaries was cool it was limited in the way you're describing it was a very thin veneer of choice it would not stand up to play today but there's something about the i want to say attitude of the first games the mech warrior 2 and ghost bears legacy both have this sort of cold detached thing that mercenaries changes up mercenaries is more of an involved like look here look at the soundtracks the soundtrack for mech warrior 2 and ghost bear like they're you can still find them because they're pretty popular but they're heavy synth a lot of electronic a lot of like pounding drums and stuff whereas mercenaries is more hard rock more like wailing guitars and stuff yeah the the attitude of the game changes and i kind of like the removed attitude of the first two games, especially because they take place from the perspective of these clans, these like warrior societies who are all like it, it, it made it feel more, I don't know, more, I want to say robot-y, which is such a stupid word. <laughs> but I do, I do like those. It's, I mean, I, what you're hearing audience is that Jesse's playing Sophie's choice. and can't choose between his favorites. <laughs> uh, I, I will say the thing that, and and that is on my side of history as far as mercenaries being the the best of the bunch is that they have gone back to the mercenary well so many times with the subsequent games so like, many yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. mech warrior 4 got an expansion called mercenaries and mech warrior 5 at launch was subtitled mercenaries and battletech you're a mercenary battletech you play as mercenaries mech commander before it came out was initially a mercenary thing Yeah, I mean, Battletech is a game with a lot of different factions, and mercenaries are a great way to allow the player to try out all the different ones at once. Yeah, pinning you down. It makes sense. So yeah, I I do see that. But again, it's number one on both our lists, and we both grouped them all together because they really are the same game. Does it hold up? No, it really doesn't. It um, it was great for its time. But they have made better Mech Warrior games since then. They have made better mechanics since then. But that was a breakthrough, and it's still referenced by people who are making big robot games to this day because it did so much right. And I didn't realize it was developed in-house at Activision. And I thought they just published it. And when I realized that, I mean, (laughs) there was no other direction this list was going to (laughs) go Yeah, I have to say, before we uh, wrap up, I'm surprised uh, StarCraft didn't make either of our lists. StarCraft is, I I mean, universally is a really good game, but I think it came out, like, I was too old for it to be something I'm nostalgic about, and yet it's too far away from the best kind of game in its genre. Hmm. Does that make sense? Like, it, it, it missed the sweet spots either way. Okay. Also, StarCraft II was awful. Like, it definitely <laughs> casts a shadow on its predecessor. Wow, okay. I, and I'm surprised that WarCraft Three didn't make the list, unless you had like a personal limitation of like one thing per, uh, I, per I franchise. I, I, again, I have much more fond memories of WarCraft Two than I do of Three. Three is real cool. Uh, it's also been involved in one of the many scandals that... Uh, <laughs> Has hit Blizzard recently, and we will talk more about that next week. It, uh, it's not so cool anymore. Uh, but yeah, I, I, Warcraft 2, I think, is a much shinier beacon on a hill. Than, whereas Warcraft 3 was just another Warcraft game, you know? Yeah. All right, well, I think we did it. I think we covered it all. I think we did it. So those are a bunch of amazing games and a bunch of franchises that even you non-gamers in the audience have probably heard of. And they now belong to Microsoft, and we will get more into what that means next week, because that is wild. Um, But for now, I just want to say thank you for tuning in. Uh, It's just those of you who are regular listeners, those of you who are active members of the community, those of you who actively solicit feedback, you especially, (laughs) because we love having these conversations with you. Uh, It is a blast. While we are giving out thanks, also want to thank Oliver Wickham, guy behind our theme song. He's a music producer. You can find him on Spotify. He's got some real incredible stuff. Please check it out. And finally, please let us know if there's anything we missed. Um, Activision Blizzard 
parent company for a just huge just archive of stuff uh went through it pretty thoroughly but there may have been some diamonds in the rough that we missed uh if there's anything in there that you were personally offended that we didn't bring up uh this you know now is the time because again we're going to be hitting this topic again next week so please let us know what you think graham how can they get that stuff to us our email address is geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5, and we're on Twitter at geektop5. You can also go to our website, geektop5.com, and you can leave comments on all of our episodes. They all have their own pages and their own little comment boards. You can also go to your podcatcher of choice and rate and review us and leave your comments there, and we will see them and uh, discuss them. Those reviews and ratings, by the way, super helpful to us to let us know where the podcast is being listened to as well as how um, anything that you submit is going to go directly into our consideration and will make the show better for you. So, about seven games I think we hit because of some overlap on our list, but some huge franchises and a bunch of them still readily available uh, and old enough that they're probably pretty cheap. If you wanted to pick them up, give them a try. They come highly recommended um, and will definitely keep you busy until we get a chance to do this again. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5, and we'll talk to you again next week. Okay, uh, should we get this row in the show? Yep. Daddy tired. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was... <laughs> I, I you know you're... To, because no, you have a kid, but... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't... You don't have to. I don't... I, I don't want to call you daddy. Oh, I mean... Okay. I think... Yeah. It's an option. Let me just... Can we... Let's just start. Okay. <clears throat> Oh god! <laughs> Sorry, everything's fine. You Sorry. sure? The the yeah, the table's coming apart a little bit, but it's fine. It's fine. All right, all right, Daddy. <laughs> uh... Geek top five. I'm Jesse, and I'm Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't hold it together. Uh... Sorry, sorry. All right. Take two. <laughs> oh. All right. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> this is the most fun I've had in weeks. Uh, you did. <laughs> <laughs>